0: Uh, this morning, I'm going to test your imagination. So, I want you to do your best to imagine with me that you are a 17 year old girl. Okay? Now, I know this might be a little more difficult for some of you than for others, but do your best, all right? So, you're a high school teenager. You've had a pretty good life so far. You've got loving Christian parents, you have a stable home, you love Jesus. You're maybe not so confident about sharing your faith with your friends, um, but that's okay. You, you love Jesus anyway. And um, at school, you exist in this sort of special social bubble called J-Hall. Now, let me explain what J-Hall is. J-Hall is where you can find all the artsy kids. So you've got the drama freaks and the band geeks and the choir nerds, and they're all sort of spread out among J-Hall, and it's a really wonderful place. And everyone is accepted in J-Hall. Now, on this particular day, you're sitting in the auditorium with a group of your friends, and as J-Hall teenagers often do, you're discussing your very deep thoughts about the world that you're about to enter, And um, on this particular day, the discussion turns to religion. Well, you are a slightly insecure 17-year-old girl, so you decide to just sit and listen. And as you sit there, one young man starts to talk about all of the inconsistencies there are to be found in the Bible. Well, your defenses go up. This must not stand. Here's this... uh, Well, he's like the captain of the football team in J-Hall terms. He's the male lead of the spring musical. And he's talking smack about the Bible. Now, you try to offer a defense, but you really don't feel confident enough in your knowledge of the facts to to really be bold. And then it happens. He looks you right in the eye and he says, anyone who believes the Bible is true is an idiot. Well... (laughs) You might be wondering what that horrible sound is right now. That is the sound of your vulnerable, tender, slightly insecure 17-year-old female heart being crushed by a steel-toed boot. You are devastated. And even though your friends jump to your defense and they say to the guy to stop being so mean, the damage has been done, and any chance that you might have had of being an effective witness to your friends and peers is gone, uh, It's been destroyed by a guy who puts on stage makeup and costumes and dances around singing about enchanted evenings for fun. (laughs) And it will be years before you regain the confidence to be able to share your faith boldly. Now, unfortunately, this is a true story of something that happened to me. And things like this happen to believers all the time. Now, the details might be a little different, but... the result is the same, Christians feeling unable to share their faith, to preach the gospel with the world around them. Now, it might be due to circumstances beyond our control or the unkind words of others, but the truth is that often we believers allow our fears and failures to stop us from proclaiming the gospel. And today we're going to take a look at Philippians chapter 1, Uh, verses 12 through 18. And let's look at it together, and then we'll dive in and see if we can find a solution to this problem. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear." Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice." This portion of Scripture is part of a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi when he was imprisoned in Rome. Now, as we read, he told the Philippians about the negative circumstances of his imprisonment and how that has led to the spread of the gospel and how many believers have put their trust in the Lord to proclaim the gospel. Now, truth here remains constant for us 2,000 years later, which is that believers can trust the Lord to provide what they need to proclaim the con- the gospel regardless of their circumstances. How does the Lord do this? This passage suggests several abilities for sharing the good news that come from placing our trust in Him. First, we can trust the Lord to enable us to proclaim the good news with courage. Let's go back and look again at verse 14. He says that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment Have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Now, as I mentioned, this text is part of a letter written by Paul in Rome, and uh, most of the scholars that I've read place his imprisonment between the years of 60 to 62 AD. And the suggestion is that he wrote this letter toward the end of that time. So, the book of Acts will give you all the background information about why Paul was in prison, and I recommend that you read that on your own. It's a fairly lengthy story. Um, the narrative can be found starting in Acts chapter 1, verses 17 and following, and it goes all the way through the end of the book in chapter 28. But I'll give you the shortened version. Paul went to Jerusalem to meet with the, um, the Christian elders there in the church in Jerusalem, and while he was there, as he often did, he went to the temple. While he was at the temple, a mob of Jews came, and they started to try to kill him. Um, Now, they were protesting about two specific things. First, they were claiming that Paul had taken a a non-Jewish man into the temple. This wasn't true, but if it had been true, it was a huge taboo, um, really against the rules. And then the second thing was that they were upset because they claimed that Paul was preaching against the Jews and the temple and the law everywhere he went. This mob really got out of hand, and as a result, the Roman soldiers who were stationed in Jerusalem were forced to step in. They couldn't get a straight story from anyone about what was going on, so instead of trying to sort it all out, they just took Paul into custody. There was a lot of wrangling around trying to figure out what to do with Paul Uh, And in the process, he had the opportunity to preach the gospel to a number of prominent figures, both among the Jews and the Roman elite. Now, eventually, because Paul was a Roman citizen, he had the opportunity to appeal to have his case heard by Caesar. So, Paul was transported to Rome. Now, if you read this story on your own, you'll find out that this might be the longest prisoner transport in the history of the world, but eventually he made it, and um, when he got there, he was placed under house arrest, and uh, he was allowed to send letters and receive visitors as he wished. As you might imagine, Paul's uh, word of Paul's situation spread pretty quickly throughout Rome. And the text tells us that Christians in Rome saw Paul's situation, and rather than fearing that they too would end up in chains for their faith, they trusted in the Lord and gained the courage to preach the word of God without fear. What does this kind of courage look like in a modern context? After all, we Americans have freedom of speech, right? The chances of us being locked up for speaking about our beliefs are pretty slim. However, I think we can all think about certain circumstances where we might be afraid to speak about the gospel. With that in mind, let me give you a more modern example of courage. In 2004 a man named Viktor Yushchenko ran for the presidency of the Ukraine. Even a mysterious poisoning attempt, which left him badly disfigured, was not enough to deter him from continuing to run for the office. However, Viktor Yushchenko is not the hero of this story. On the day of the election, Yushchenko was comfortably in the lead, but the ruling party, which was not to be denied, tampered with the results. And the state-run television reported Ladies and gentlemen, we announce that the challenger, Viktor Yushchenko, has been decisively defeated. Now, in the lower right-hand corner of the screen, a woman by the name of Natalia Dimitrik was providing a translation service for the deaf community. Now, as the news reporter presented the lies of the state regime, Natalia refused to translate them. "'I'm addressing all the deaf, deaf citizens of Ukraine,' she signed." They are lying, and I'm ashamed to translate those lies. Yushchenko is our president. Now, Upon seeing this, the deaf community sprang into action. They texted their friends, they passed the word along about the fraudulent result that was being reported in the news. <clears throat> and as word spread of Dmitryuk's act of defiance, increasing numbers of journal- journalists were also inspired to tell the truth. Now, over the coming weeks, what's now called the Orange Revolution occurred as a million people wearing orange descended on the capital city of Kiev in protest of the election results and then demanding a new election. And the government was forced to meet their demands. A new election was held and Viktor Yushchenko became president. Natalia Dmitryk was courageous. She must have been aware of the possible consequences of speaking the truth, but she did it anyway. And just like the Roman Christians, other journalists took courage from her words and actions and spoke the truth to their audiences as well, leading to a revolution. We too can take courage from one another to speak the truth of Christ. And we can also know that the Lord himself both wants our courage and will help supply it. How do we know this? Well, we know because the scripture tells us. It tells us that God commands courage and also promises help. We get a glimpse of this in Deuteronomy chapter 31. In this passage, Moses is giving instructions to the Israelites and specifically to Joshua as they prepare to enter the promised land. And verses 6 through 8 of Deuteronomy say this, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their forefathers to give them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And just a few verses later, the Lord himself spoke. The Lord gave this command to Joshua, son of Nun, be strong and courageous, for you will bring the Israelites into the land I promised them on oath. I myself will be with you. This command to be strong and courageous is repeated throughout Scripture, along with the promise of the Lord's help. So clearly, courage is an important virtue in the eyes of the Lord. And not only does the Lord command courage, He also honors those who show courage in his name. For example, in the book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14, you find the familiar story of the 12 Israelite spies who go into the promised land. They're supposed to go and make a report of what they find there and bring it back to the Israelites so they know what to expect before they enter. Now, 10 of those 12 spies came back They said, yeah, yeah, the the land is great, it's everything the Lord said, but they have giants and like fortified cities and giants. Now, when the believers, the Israelites heard this, they fell to weeping and complaining against God, Uh, and only two of the scouts, Joshua and Caleb, showed any courage. They tried to tell the Israelites that the Lord would deliver the land to them, just as he promised, but the Israelites would hear nothing of it. Now, God saw what was happening, and he became furious with his people. He told them that as a result of their cowardice, no one over the age of 20 would be allowed to enter the promised land. In fact, the whole group of them would have to wander the desert for years and years until the older generation had died off, and then Joshua and Caleb could lead the younger generations into the land. I would say that the Lord honored the courage of Joshua and Caleb. So how do we get this courage? Well, the people in these examples made a conscious choice to be courageous. And we can do the same, choosing to rely on the Lord, trusting that he will supply us with the courage we need to speak the gospel to someone, especially when we're afraid. Now, while a lack of courage may be a powerful obstacle to sharing our faith with others, sometimes it's not the thing that is the most powerful obstacle. Sometimes we don't proclaim the gospel because we have broken relationships or we lack the proper motivation. However, the passage we're looking at today shows us that we can trust the Lord to enable us to proclaim the gospel with love and humility. Now, if we continue reading verses 15 and se- through 17 in our passage in Philippians, we'll find that Paul gives his audience a description of the people in Rome who had begun proclaiming the gospel more boldly as a result of his imprisonment. So listen again to Paul's words. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Apparently, not everyone who's preaching the gospel is doing it out of the goodness of their own hearts. Some of them are preaching out of selfishness and feelings of rivalry toward Paul, thinking that maybe they can make his life a little more difficult. Now, the general consensus is that these people are preaching the true gospel, and we can be fairly confident of that. Because of the way Paul reacts to heresy in his other letters, we've been hearing from Pastor James about Paul's letters to Timothy, and in there he's very clear about his opposition to people who preach a message that strays from the truth. Now, that's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying they are preaching the gospel, they're just doing it with poor motives, It may be that they saw Paul's imprisonment as an opportunity to make a name for themselves, to fill a power vacuum, as you will. However, not everyone in Rome is preaching out of selfishness. Some have been emboldened to preach the gospel because they love Paul, and they know that he's there because of his faithful defense of the gospel. It's those people that I want to pay attention to, The Christian love that these believers have for Paul inspires them to carry on the work of spreading the good news about Jesus. It's their love for Paul and trust in the Lord that has enabled them to speak boldly, not being stopped by concern of what might happen to them. Love for one another can be a powerful motivator. It can enable us to accomplish things we never thought possible. One of my favorite examples of this comes from The Lord of the Rings. Toward the end of the story, Frodo Baggins and his faithful companion Samwise Gamgee have finally reached Mount Doom, and they're there. They have to destroy the powerful One Ring by throwing it into the fires where it was forged. Now, by this point of their journey, the two travelers have exhausted their supplies. They've used up their food and water. They're physically exhausted, and the weight of Frodo's burden has taken incredible mental and emotional toll on him as well. And while he sleeps, Sam has a mental debate. He realizes that Frodo has come to the end of his strength, and he decides that he will make sure that Frodo gets to the top of the mountain, even if he has to die to get him there. So with great effort, Sam rouses Frodo from his sleep, but Frodo only has the strength to crawl up the slope of the mountain. Now listen to what Sam does next out of his great love for his friend. Sam looked at him and wept in his heart, but no tears came to his dry and stinging eyes. I said I'd carry him if it broke my back, he muttered, and I will. Come, Mr. Frodo, he cried. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you and it as well. So up you get. Come on, Mr. Frodo, dear, Sam will give you a ride. Just tell him where to go and he'll go. As Frodo clung upon his back, arms loosely about his neck, legs clasped firmly under his arms, Sam staggered to his feet and then, to his amazement, felt the burden light. He had feared that he would barely have strength to lift his master alone, and beyond that, he had expected to share in the dreadful dragging weight of the accursed ring. But it was not so. Whether because Frodo was so worn by his long pains, wound of knife and venomous sting and sorrow, fear and homeless wandering, or because some gift of final strength was given to him, Sam lifted Frodo, with no more difficulty than if he were carrying a hobbit child, pig in some romp on the lawns or hayfields of the Shire. He took a deep breath and started off. Sam Gamgee is characterized by his love and loyalty for his friend. And as Christians, we too should be characterized for love for one another. And as our love for others helps us to serve them and put their needs before our own, we find that the Lord enables us to speak with humility as well. The scriptures teach that our love for one another is how the watching world will know that we are followers of Christ. And Jesus told his disciples exactly that in John 13, 34 and 35, saying, A new command I give you, love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Just a little while later, in John 15, 13, Jesus defines that love for his disciples, saying, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. To me, this statement speaks of both love and humility, and it seems that these attributes go hand in hand with one another. Paul speaks at greater length about the subject of humility a bit further on in his letter to the Philippians, In chapter 2, he exhorts his readers to have the same mindset as Christ in their relationships with one another. And he gives this beautiful hymn about the humility of Christ, which is found in verses 6 through 8. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So, Jesus tells us that we need to love one another and that loving each other looks like laying down our lives. And Paul says that Jesus, in his very person and actions, modeled the kind of humility that we are to imitate. This sounds like a tall order, but Paul gives a hint on how we can attain this attitude of love and humility. It comes from our relationship with Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says this, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in Spirit and of one mind." These attributes of love and humility translate very well to sharing the gospel with others. We share the gospel because we love them and because we want them to have eternal life. And our love is authentic if it's backed up by humility and service. We are enabled in this task through our relationship with Christ. Now, as a point of application here, I encourage each of us to take a step of faith, by showing love to someone that maybe we find it difficult to love, trusting that God will use our humble words and actions as a witness to our faith in Christ. Courage, love, and humility are all qualities that Christ can help us to grow in. However, sometimes despite God's work in us and our best efforts, our circumstances become so oppressive that our temptation is to give up, leaving the task of proclaiming the gospel to someone else. There's good news here, too, for the Scripture shows us that we can trust the Lord to enable us to proclaim the gospel with joy. In verse 18, the final verse of today's passage, we come to a statement that I found utterly baffling the first time I read it. Remember, Paul has just told his readers that some of the Roman Christians are preaching out of totally selfish motives. But then he says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul's number one priority in the spread of the gospel of Christ is the, is the spread of the gospel of Christ, and that gives him joy. He's in jail, he's unable to be the missionary that he once was, and yet the fact that the gospel continues to spread gives him joy. Joy is a tricky thing. I think sometimes we equate it with happiness and with things going well for us. But this passage, Paul models the idea that joy can be totally separated from our personal circumstances. And my friend Peggy began to understand this concept when she was diagnosed with breast cancer in the summer of 2014. Shortly after receiving her diagnosis, Peggy started a blog And she kept it up throughout her entire entire struggle with the disease. I'd like to read to you some of her own words about her choice to be joyful despite her circumstances. When I started thinking I might be looking at a fight with cancer, I decided to write my blessings again. It had been a while, and as I started to practice seeing God in my life again, I got my diagnosis. This time I feel like He's asking me to be open and transparent to allow others to journey with me, to completely let go of my need to look strong. So when I list my joys, I'm not trying to seem stronger than I am, and I'm not trying to say that all I see in life is happiness. I list my joys to remind me to trust that God loves me and that his love is enough. I list my joys to invite you to take the journey with me. I list my joys in surrender of wanting to look strong, I list my joys as I ask for help, and as I ask for help, I see this community building up around me, and I see what the world could be like if we spent more time choosing to journey with others and choosing to see the light instead of the darkness. I want to learn to embrace each moment of every day, both good and bad, and that is why I choose joy. I still have a long way to go, but I am learning. Through all of her treatments, Her struggles and pain and fear, Peggy continued to put her trust in the Lord and to choose joy. She wasn't quiet about it either. She spoke boldly about her joys through her blog and in person, and by the time her body failed, she had inspired many hundreds of people to choose joy in their lives as well. Listen to the words of her husband, Paul, written just 20 days after her death. Peggy passed away on June 29, 2015. I'm writing this post. This a sec. You know, when I practiced this at home, I didn't cry. <laughs> I'm writing this post to continue her legacy of choosing joy. In the beginning of her journey with breast cancer, Peggy felt like God was telling her to be open with her experiences. This is why she began writing her blog. She opened her heart to each of you, chronicling her journey through her fear and through the valley of shadow of death and into joy. Through her journey, she chose joy in a number of ways. She wrote her joys in a notebook, and she wrote her joys and blessings on slips of paper that made their way into our joy jar. This was not an escape or denial of the fear she felt, or of the grief she felt over the possibility of missing out on our children's lives. It was a countermeasure against the grief and against the fear. Writing these down required her to seek and to take note each day of the things that brought her joy. They reminded her that fear, which often fights to appear all consuming to define us, is only part of our story. We were and always have been surrounded by God's blessings. She just needed to give those blessings the attention they deserve. In so doing, she chose to be defined by the grace with which she endured instead of her circumstances. Peggy faced her circumstances honestly. And just like the Apostle Paul, she was able to find joy and to choose to embrace it rather than to wallow in her pain. Now the Apostle shows us by his words in Philippians that joy is a choice. But Scripture also tells us that joy is a natural response to the love of God and to the work that he does to grow us in Christian character. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, Jesus is speaking at length to his disciples about his relationship with them and also his relationship with God. And then in verses 9 through 11, he says this, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus expected that the disciples' response to his instructions would be joy. We can find examples of joyful response to God's work throughout the Scriptures, but I'd like to mention just one. This is found in the book of Nehemiah. Now, the Israelites had returned to the land after their many years of exile, and when they got there, they had a great deal of work to do to rebuild. Now, when they finally finished rebuilding the wall, they had kind of started to become more settled in the land. They all gathered together to hear the recitation of the law and the explanation of it. And when they heard this, their response was great sorrow over their sins. Upon hearing the law, they were struck by how far they were, from the standard. And as a nation, they wept. Now, however, Nehemiah and Ezra and all the priests, they told them to stop their mourning and weeping and to respond instead with joy, telling them in chapter 8, verse 10 Go and enjoy choice foods and sweet drinks, and spend some t- send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the people did just what they said. They stopped their crying, and they went and had a party. Excuse me. Verse 12 says, Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Their joyful celebration didn't change the reality of their sin, but... It did change their focus, away from themselves and onto God, who is the source of all joy. Joy is a deliberate response to the work of the Lord and can be experienced regardless of what else is going on in our lives. When we identify and choose to be thankful for the ways the Lord has worked in our lives, we can proclaim his gospel with joy, even if our circumstances are difficult. As we've seen so far, we can trust the Lord to enable us to proclaim the good news with courage, love, and humility, and joy. However, even the most courageous, loving, joyful proclaimer can be worn down over time and hardship and be tempted to give up. It's good news, then, that we can also trust the Lord to enable us to proclaim the gospel with perseverance. By the time Paul wrote his letter to the Philippians, He'd already endured a great many hardships throughout his missionary journeys. We know that the time of his writing uh, in jail, as I mentioned earlier, he'd probably already been there for two years, and we can get an idea of some of the other hardships he'd experienced by looking back at his second letter to the Corinthians, which was written before his time in jail, in 2 Corinthians 11:23 23 through 27, we can read that Paul experienced an impressive list of hardships, including numerous severe beatings, stoning, imprisonments, shipwrecks, and many other dangers. I think if it were me, I would have been tempted to throw in the towel after the first beating. However, Paul was able to persevere through all of that and more because of his trust in the Lord. And we can find many other examples of people who persevered despite failure and hardship. But let me tell you about just one. This particular man first failed in business at age 22. A year later, he ran and was defeated for state legislator. A year after that, his second business failed. The woman he loved died two years after that, and he had a nervous breakdown the following year at age 27. At age 34, he ran for Congress and was defeated Five years later, he tried again and was defeated again. He tried running for the Senate at age 48 and he lost. The next year, he ran for vice president and lost. At age 50, he ran for the Senate again and was defeated again. Finally, after all those failures and losses at age 51 in the year 1860, the man who signed his name A. Lincoln was elected president. Abraham Lincoln persevered and he became one of the most important presidents in the history of our nation. And no one ever said that perseverance was easy. In fact, the Bible tells us that perseverance is a result of experiencing trials and suffering. In Romans 5.3, Paul says that suffering produces perseverance. And in chapter 1 of his letter, James says that we should face trials with joy because we know that the testing of our faith produces perseverance. The biblical models of perseverance assure us that the virtue often comes at a painfully high price. Just look at Job. He lost literally everything except for his life, and yet he continued to honor the Lord. Or better yet, look at Christ. Jesus persevered three years of ministry with a bunch of followers who most of the time weren't quite sure who it was they were following. And he endured unbelievable pain and suffering on behalf of all mankind, vast numbers of whom would never acknowledge his sacrifice. So if it's so painful, why should we bother to persevere? Well, the scriptures are clear. Perseverance produces spiritual maturity and virtue. Romans 5.3 says that perseverance gained through suffering produces character, and character produces hope. James 1.23 states that those who persevere under trials will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And James 5.11, the author says that those who have persevered are considered blessed. Perseverance is a choice that each of us makes, relying on the Lord for strength to endure. It's not something that happens overnight. Rather, perseverance in the faith and in sharing the gospel is something that happens one day at a time, one decision at a time. In order that you might persevere, I encourage you to take your circumstances and trials one day at a time, asking the Lord to grant you each day only what is required for that day, trusting that He will provide. Perseverance in proclaiming the gospel through trials eventually leads to a lifetime of faithful service, allowing each of us in the end to hear the voice of our Lord saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Through this short passage in Philippians, we can be encouraged, knowing that we can trust our Lord to enable us to faithfully proclaim his message. Now at the beginning of this message, I asked you to uh, imagine a particular scene And as I come to the end of what I want to say to you, uh, I ask you to indulge me once more. Take note of the difference between the outcomes of these two scenes. Imagine Paul on house arrest in Rome. As a Roman citizen, he has been afforded some freedoms, such as the ability to send letters, receive visitors, and enjoy some of the comforts of home that he wouldn't have had in a prison cell. However, He's unable to leave, and he is under 24-hour guard by the Roman Praetorian soldiers. The changing of the guard comes every four hours, day and night. This guard rotation wouldn't be too much of a disturbance, except for the fact that Paul is likely literally in bondage, connected at the wrist by a length of chain to his jailers. His movement is restricted in this way, and the regular changing of the guard at the other end of the chain probably means that his sleep is disturbed too. Weary and uncomfortable, Paul is cut off from the ability to do what he does best, traveling the world, spreading the gospel of Christ. His imprisonment is a direct result of his preaching the gospel. And by the time he writes this letter to the believers in Philippi, he has probably already been imprisoned for close to two years. It would have been totally understandable if Paul had been discouraged and frustrated by his circumstances. And to add insult to injury, some of the believers in Rome have been preaching this gospel in hopes of making a name for themselves in Paul's absence. However, others have seen Paul's attitude and his circumstance and have begun preaching the gospel with greater confidence out of trust in the Lord and love for Paul, knowing that he is in chains because of his defense of the gospel. So instead of being angry or depressed, Paul tells the Philippians that he has reason to rejoice. How is this even possible? Paul explains that rather than stifling the gospel, his imprisonment has turned out for the spread of the gospel. Remember those guards that Paul is chained to day and night? They are literally a captive audience for the message of the gospel. Paul tells the Philippians that he doesn't care about the motives of the people preaching as long as the true gospel is being proclaimed. We all have things in our lives that cause us to shy away from proclaiming the gospel at times, especially when we're enduring hardship. However, the God we serve is mighty and trustworthy, and he is able to provide us with what we need to continue to spread the good news. As you go from here, I urge you to consider Paul stuck on house arrest, rejoicing in the fact that the good news about Jesus was continuing to spread despite his less-than-ideal circumstances. Remember that the Lord can be trusted and make the choice to trust him daily. Ask him to enable you to proclaim the gospel with courage instead of fear, love and humility instead of selfish motives, joy in spite of your circumstances, and perseverance over time. These actions require us to take a step of faith, but we can do so trusting that he is able to provide all that we need. Let's pray. Lord, I am thankful that you are mighty and trustworthy and that you promise to provide us with what we need each day. And I ask, Lord, that you would do so and that you would allow us the courage and the love and the joy and the perseverance that we need to proclaim your gospel to a watching world. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen.